content warning in this episode for mentions of suicide and violence. Kia ora koutou. Kia ora. Welcome to our first episode of Dinner and a Movie. My name's Jimmy Lanyard. My name is Nabila Husnab. And we're talking about the things that people do through the lens of food and film. Yeah, so what we'll do in this series is essentially chat and invite invite first and then chat with some guests that we think are cool artists activists uh, academics also cool yeah i think and learn about what they're really into could be as specific or as broad as they want to be before we open up this this uh what's the word for a, a like a thruple but for only two people um what before we a open couple? up this this duopoly uh, yeah. um to, to other parties right. um we thought we should probably you know get a, a proof of concept yes. out there kind of define the, the kind of concept of the podcast um, before we push the limits of that. Mm-hmm. So today we got someone real special with us, someone who I think is super, super neat, bro, and real cool. She's got it all. Her name is... It's me, Jimmy. Uh-huh. I'm yeah. the first guest. I, well, what? Yeah, so hit me with your questions. Jimmy, I'm a guest. Imagine that you have no idea who I am. How would you be learning about <clears throat> me? Okay, so I guess, first of all, Nabila, what do you do? I do a lot and nothing as well sometimes. I'm a PhD student at Teherangawaka. I am taking, uh, it's, I've, I'm about six months into this PhD journey, but yeah, started with a master's in 2020 when I first came to Aotearoa, and I have basically been in the academic grind since, tutoring and doing marking work, underpaid bullshit, uh, but yeah, my PhD is in sociology. Um, shout out to, to Victoria University. Shout out to Victoria University. And here's to the, the trailblazers, the thinkers, <laughs> the <laughs> dark-minded people. And the, the union crushes. The union crushes. Tears to all those renegades and rascals and rapscallions <laughs> and dinguses and silly buggers out there. Here's to, to all of you. Vic Uni, that most esteemed of all institutions that we know and we love. The labor exploitation within Vic Uni aside. Yeah. <laughs> and let's not and let's not dwell on, on things like the the university's obsession with platforming um, extremists and let's We'll let's, save that for a, a whole episode. 
Yeah, and you know, like the way they've defunded um, the social sciences and the arts and in favor of the more lucrative disciplines is, is not something that we're really going to delve into. We're not going to talk about how they have sort of tokenistic classes set aside for students of color and indigenous students uh, with no funding to train and actively recruit tutors uh, who do that work. And we're not going to talk about how all of that work is absorbed by the tutors who end up having to bear the burden of dealing with a Pakeha racist white supremacist institution. No. No, and like I guess most importantly, we're not going to talk about Vic Uni's like protection of abusers, and we're not going to talk about the, the the fact that in uh, 2022 they're they're really just getting around to to, to formulating an idea around um, lecturers um, maybe shouldn't sleep with students. No, we know we know. No, no. So that aside, um, <laughs> what do you do? My area of research, uh, my discipline is sociology, and my area of research is on solidarity and resistance. Um, Specifically, I'm looking at how Southeast Asian Tangata Tariti, so people of the treaty who, migrants who have come here um, from Southeast Asia, first generation migrants, participate in everyday solidarity and resistance for the support of um, Te Tariti Owatangi-based uh, futures. Um, so there's a lot to sort of dive into there. But essentially, I guess I'm interested in understanding how we can look at solidarity and resistance beyond just the tangible, visible uh, products of movements like uh, protests or um, some sort of... Uh, collective organizing, formal organizing work, which are extremely important. Um, I Or voting. Or voting. <laughs> <laughs> the most important <laughs> form of practice in... The uh, liberal state, uh, yeah. yes. Some would say the only form yeah. of practice. Yeah, so how people sort of embody ideas of solidarity and resistance in their everyday life. So, yeah, Titriti is the founding immigration document of Aotearoa. And there's been a lot of movement uh, over the last few decades, essentially, of trying to push for constitutional transformation in Aotearoa, which would move us towards a decolonized future to summarize with as little nuance as I can fit into a podcast. Maybe as a bit of context, we should really wish a, a happy birthday to the, the Queen. Uh, ah. We're recording this on, on Queen's birthday, and I understand yeah. that she's just turned 207 years old. Yes, um, let's sing Let's sing a song. Death to, to the, the monarchy, death to the monarchy, death to the monarchy. Oh, sorry, breaking, getting some breaking news in here. Uh, um, oh. Uh, Queen 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 uh, Elizabeth II has just been crowned God Emperor of oh, the British no. Empire. Yeah, she's ascended into a, a mortal form. Yeah, she don't need that. Yeah, she's kind of fused her DNA with that of of um, a Cornish pasty. Oh uh, shit! You know how they have dumplings in every cuisine? 
some sort of dumpling in every cuisine. Yeah. I don't think Cornish pasties should be considered that. Because apparently, despite their name, they don't even have corn in them. Oh, fuck. All right. A bit corny then, Jimmy. No, I was going to say that every Singaporean I know who has gone to the UK and wants to, is homesick and wants to try a little bit of food that would remind, that would sort of scratch the itch of an apple apple. An apple apple for people who are in the dark is a Malay curry puff. And yeah, but then they just get extremely disappointed because it's very bad. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about Cornish pasties. And I'm sure we'll kind of delve into, given the, the themes of this podcast, delve into the intricacies of British cuisine in a future episode. Now, Nabila, your research sounds extremely interesting i still have some questions i was wondering if you could explain it to me through the frame Mm -hmm. of a meal what is oh shit okay interesting at the moment because i'm only six months in and i haven't learned to hate it yet in my thinking uh for my research topic so as i mentioned i'm looking into the idea of solidarity as one of the um concepts so what solidarity is what connects people in order to Um, support Indigenous movements for self-determination and in the context of Aotearoa for Tinoranga Tiratanga. So one of the parts of my research that I find really interesting at the moment, because I'm only six months in, is that food is quite a central element. What solidarity is, what connects people, um, what, uh, what the basis of the kinds of solidarities that we form in order to decolonize or um, in order to um, support indigenous um, movements for self-determination um, and in the context of Aotearoa for Tinoranga Tiratanga. So one of the methods that I'm employing for my research is cooking and eating together. And I came to this method in a bunch of different ways. Firstly, I wanted to have a form of learning with participants um, in the future that wouldn't just be like an interview mm-hmm. where I could just like do something with them that means something to them. What means something to me, and I think I would assume to a lot of racialized migrants who are living in white settler state at this point is like remaining connected to cultural elements that have either been crushed out of them through um, like just pressures of assimilation or um, things that they may struggle to connect to um, living so far away from home. And because I'm looking at first generation migrants, um, the emotional connection to home might still be strong in new zealand from like a a pakeha point of view a a lot of the way that pakeha interacts with racialized migrants is is through their food and when you get shallow liberal arguments in in favor of diversity it's often about oh look at the great um great food they bring to the culture um how can you be racist against migrants when um like mild butter chicken is so good (laughs) yeah Um, so there's that sort of engagement with food that a lot of yeah colonial societies have sort of normalized the sort of uh, the appropriation of food or just food as this thing that furthers a multicultural project of the settler state Mm -hmm. so that's like 
this political idea of multiculturalism where it's diversity for diversity's sake without necessarily according power to to minorities and often sometimes used to silence or mute indigenous or native communities right to not be colonized and i think i guess one of the logical conclusions of this is and that co-option that you mentioned is these kind of white-run restaurants with fusion cuisine or mm-hmm. appropriated cuisine. In Tafanganui Atara, for example, we have Monsoon Poon, which is a, <laughs> a white-run Asian fusion restaurant themed on, like, a Vietnam War-era brothel. It's yeah. very gross. Super yikes. Um, and obviously all our, um, all our hipster Mexican food. So this sort of disconnection from... Not just the cultural elements of food, but the environmental elements of food, like how we have a relationship to food. All of these are questions that might be interesting to explore as well if we are thinking about decolonization. And I guess not so much on the flip side, but alongside this food as a medium through which people reconnect with culture that they're parents or their ancestors culture of food as a medium through which they share knowledge and pass down knowledge food as a medium of the emotions that come with being part of a diaspora or a displaced peoples and those are also interesting questions that I don't actually know if my research will dive into but I kind of want to open up that possibility by having cooking and eating together as my method. I have a very good relationship with food, I think. I agree. Mm-hmm. Very positive. Um, very positive. Whenever whenever we're up in Tamaki Makoto or over in Singapore, the, the first thing we have to do is check out all the all the Malay food that, that, yeah. that those cities have. Fanganui Atara isn't as plentiful in that regard. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm Malay, I... Grew up eating Malay food, sometimes Indian food, and have very fond memories of food. And it could be just the most, I guess, basic everyday things that I have the fondest memory about. In a roundabout way, I was trying to answer your question about um, food as the lens through which I understand my research, but I never got to talking about the dish. So yeah, what I want, what Mm -hmm. I want to say is I want one dish that embodies this idea of solidarity between racialized tangata tiriti and tangata whenua. Which food can sum up all these various ideas that are going to come through in your many tens of thousands of words doctorate? <laughs> okay. Sum it up so in one dish. I cannot summarize anything. It's physically impossible for me to sum anything up. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to read from a piece of writing that I wrote about solidarity in Singapore. And okay, so this is the piece. Attend most big events within the Malay community in Singapore and you will find featured the pulut kunyit, yellow glutinous rice. Kheg Johari's summary of the food item is one that may even conjure a characterization of solidarity that I had elsewhere, um, in a different document, explored uh, one of the interconnected nature of difference. He describes how the pulut kunyit's emblem is in the clumping together of rice grains without each grain losing its individual appearance. Quote, The bonds between the sticky grains reflect the unity and loyalty between members of families and communities. Unquote. 
Rice, in general, can be seen as a symbol of the communal life of Malays, often traditionally served dulang style. So dulang is like a large shared platter to be shared and eaten collectively. My own childhood memories include frequent gatherings after madrasa, Islamic school classes during Sunday Kanduri, where I sit amongst a small circle of five or six children tackling my part of the nasi minyak scented rice in the corner of the dulang that I can reach with my hands. So, so I think I retroactively placed meaning in pulut kunyit. Pulut kunyit is not a dish in and of itself, right? Like it comes with other like lawo, like different dishes. And I think there's symbolic meaning that you can place into this idea that like solidarity is about togetherness, but at the same time recognizing that each grain of rice is different and that it's not about being the same, but about working together across differences for a collective goal. Another way that pulut kunyit is served is as like part of nasi ambeng, which is like a giant shared platter of rice with various different dishes. And you usually eat that collectively as well, like with four, five, or six even different people um, sharing one giant platter. And it's delicious, but it's also just a powerful sort of reminder of how food can be a shared experience. Have you had the opportunity to try pulut kunyit in Aotearoa? It's Java had pulut kunyit. Shout out to the sponsor of the show. It's Java. (laughs) So it's Java had... Nasi kuning, which I guess would be the closest one. Turmeric rice. It's not quite pulut style, but um, it was extremely yummy. So it's Java is a beautiful, delicious Indonesian restaurant in Tamakimakoro. It's on 322 Karangahape Road. Or K Road, if you're a local. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we say the full name yeah. in the other, other parts of the country. They're weird up there. They call they call tag tiggy. What's tag? Like the, the game where you tag oh, one another. Oh, like chasing. Chasing, yeah. Yeah, so I have a lot to say about food. At, and I feel like that's probably why I'm struggling so much to talk about it in a way that is coherent to someone else hearing about it for the first time. I have a lot of feelings about food. Food reminds me family and childhood. I do like this idea of, of rice as a symbol of, of solidarity. And you mm-hmm. talked about the the role of the individual grains, but I think mm-hmm. you've also in the past talked about in your, your solidarity work with Asian supporting Tenoranga Teretanga ah, yes. that rice is, uh, kind of plays a, a similar role. Uh, one of the fun sort of activities we like to do as part of Fanungatanga is to have instead of an icebreaker we have a rice breaker uh, yeah. <laughs> um, where each person kind of goes around explaining with as much detail as they can muster how they cook their rice and you go you get a lot of freaks out there i mean i'm just saying it's re- it's really interesting thinking the about the act of sharing food as a, a gesture of solidarity and i i guess that it makes me think about i i mean some some cultures maybe don't share food with guests <laughs> um, and we're on to a segment called <laughs> what's going on on twitter <laughs> This week, I mean, we all knew it, 
Uh, we knew it. We knew it, we knew it was coming. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> um, the, the, the Whisper Network has been loud and clear, but um, in the past <laughs> week, we finally managed to cancel Sweden. We got them, folks. Mission accomplished. Cancel. Cancel. You ca- if you Google it on like Google Maps, you can't actually find Sweden anywhere. Sweden has withdrawn from the map to spend more time with its family. <laughs> <laughs> the, country, the country of Sweden is on gardening leave. What's Sweden got to do with food? Well, obviously... <laughs> Nothing. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cultural sharing of food, this idea of hospitality or manakitanga, we see it in lots of different cultures, definitely throughout the Muslim world, mm-hmm. throughout the Polynesian world, mm-hmm. throughout the Americas, throughout um, Southern Europe. It's a big part in Italian and, and Greek cooking. I think 99% of cultures have some idea of sharing food with your guests, but the one or hospitality, yeah, or, or hospitality, yeah, and that's going to be a fruitful <laughs> topic for future episodes of the podcast. But the one or the biggest exception to this rule is the dastardly Nords, those IKEA-loving motherfuckers from yeah. up in the cold, cold north. So those Swedes do not have a culture of sharing food, and in fact, if you're a child and you're playing at your friend's house, you need to sit. And look at the corner while the family eats. <laughs> like like Blair Witch. So before you say hashtag not all Swedes. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, speaking of Sweden yeah. and the Swedes, I guess that sort of segues into my mahi through the lens of film. Yeah, so what film do you think sums up your ideas around ideas of social scientists working within cultures that are not their own? I think there's a lot that I can get into, but I love the film Midsummer. Yeah, so I have seen Midsummer twice, once two years ago in the middle of summer, and yesterday night. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it's it deals with that really that really primal fear that we have. You know, lots of films deal with fears related to bodily mutilation or the dark or or monsters, but Midsummer is a 2019 folk horror that deals with that that fear that we all have of the dastardly Swede. (laughs) Yes. So it's a folk horror film by Ari Aster, a film that follows a dysfunctional couple, Danny and Christian, Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner, who looks like Chris Pratt. Um, It's not Chris Pratt. As they travel to Sweden um, with a group of friends for a midsummer festival. Uh, And then they find themselves, as you do, in the middle of a sinister Scandinavian pagan cult. But Nabila, I hear the listeners asking, what has this got to do mm-hmm. with sociology? So in the film, part of the reason why they ended up in Sweden is because one of the... So they're all PhD students, these main characters. I guess you're going to get spoiled in this podcast anyway. But the the main character, played by Florence Danny is going through it. She, she, uh, the op- the opening of the film is her in a state of horrible anxiety. She finds out that her sister commits a murder suicide on her parents and herself, and then you also are introduced to her boyfriend Danny's boyfriend Christian who's uh, <laughs> a piece of shit um yeah and just a, a, a warning for all the, the boyfriends out there this is this is not a very uh, boyfriend friendly <laughs> 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 it's, yeah this, yeah 
But Christian is just textbook, emotionally abusive, extremely gaslighty in all sorts of ways. They all decide with Mark and Josh, who are Christian's friends, and their Swedish friend Pele invited them all to join this midsummer celebration um, at his ancestral commune in um, Sweden. And uh, one of the friends, so um, Josh, is doing his anthropological research on European midsummer festivities and thought that this was like a super cool opportunity. But at the same, and Danny decides... Danny Florence Pugh's character decides to go along with them in part probably because she was dealing with this massive thing that's happening and that's happened in her life so as you go through the film you sort of see it through the lens of Danny's character and how she's dealing with the grief of losing her family and it's a really painful film to watch um, for anyone who sort of experienced that like a similar loss I guess um with uh with family related stuff or not even that just anyone who's experienced loss I guess because it kind of gets like the mind space that people tend to be in as they deal with grief and yeah I think that's why the film is really powerful and it's not so much about just the horror bit but just how the Horror is a metaphor for what's going on in with Danny. So as this is all happening alongside a bunch of PhD students trying to figure out what their thesis is, you get introduced to different ways people processing or addressing what they're witnessing at this, what we eventually find out is like a fucking cult. Yeah, so one of it is a theme that I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to very catchily call the ethical engagement in mm. research. <laughs> Josh's character, the one who's doing his thesis on European Midsummer festivities, we find in the middle of the movie is at odds with Christian, the shitty boyfriend, because Josh has been working towards this thesis idea and is clearly there for his fieldwork. And Christian sort of tags along and then decides that he's going to do his thesis on the same topic after several months of sort of flopping about not knowing what his thesis is going to be. So as the film goes on, you sort of get confronted with questions around consent a lot, or at least consent in research. As the, the film goes on, I think you get confronted with questions of consent and all its uh yes <laughs> yes um but yeah in, in all of its variations yes you're right so one of the ways that happens is through yeah consent in research and ethics in research because as josh is trying to figure out how to get what he needs from this midsummer festivity that is horrifying, real good for his thesis, in his opinion. <laughs> um, he also has to tackle the question of this mooch friend of his um, <laughs> that like is too lazy to come up with his own thesis topic, tags along and decides to do the same thesis topic. There's a few questions there, right? Like, first of all, the idea that research is individualistic instead of collaborative is something we can think about like thesis writing or research is a competition and you have to do this in specific way and only you can do it there's this idea that you're a sole researcher and you can only do it yourself mm -hmm. you can't 
like yeah like that knowledge is something an individual can get rather than something that is collectively gathered but that's also balancing with the fact that christian is a white man and josh uh christian's a shitty boyfriend and josh is a black guy who has been working towards um this thesis topic so there's power dynamics of like who does what in academic research and the power relations across that so like you have the white guy mooch is just there bumbling about being a shitty boyfriend <laughs> um kind of just like okay i'm just gonna do this research after this sort of like tension there but also you can sort of see it stems from the same problem and that is like how we think of research and knowledge it's really interesting what you said about the kind of the push and pull behind between mm-hmm. the 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 kind of horror of the cult but the the urge to kind of to stay on for these these academics and you know often with with horror movies people ask i mean it's the most boring question that someone can ask about a horror movie but people often ask why don't they just leave the scary situation Mm. and i mean everyone has their own thing pulling them to there with um you know with the the florence Pugh character it's this feeling of like a found family or something Mm. to to fill the hole left by her grief, the sense of belonging. And mm-hmm. then with um, some of the other characters, it's this this kind of academic fascination with the pagan cult. Yeah, that idea that like these academics probably have, which is common in a lot of Western research styles, that like culture is this thing that they can just learn about and know and that they can have a complete picture of if only they find all the different elements that sort of fit into making it a thing. Yeah, and there's this, this kind of <laughs> motif throughout the, the film of like knowledge that, that does not belong to them, that they sh- yeah. should not have access to yeah. as, as interlopers. And yeah. obviously, spoiler, leads to, to Josh's death. Yeah, uh, um, and this nobility of culture in this way of doing research where it's like all knowledge is free knowledge and all knowledge is up for grabs you just have to look for it and take it is like a really colonial sort of way of looking at um, knowledge and understanding how research can be done because yeah it's like a sort of liberal sort of ideology that is underpinning all that the kind of freedom to own knowledge um, Mm. is not restricted to any sort of thing. But then, of course, we know that there's certain kinds of knowledges that are not for everyone and that if they were, then they become appropriated in this colonial context that we live in or become commodified or sold. Talking about about this, this kind of entitlement to knowledge made me think about some criticisms I've heard of the new histories curriculum where there's like a really positive renewed focus on the history of Aotearoa, the history of colonization, specific local histories mm-hmm. in, in New Zealand, which is, is really valuable and much more relevant than learning about Elizabethan England. But mm-hmm. this idea that, that some teachers have expressed is that by putting a renewed focus on local history, that puts a lot of pressure on iwi groups within mm-hmm. a specific rohe who are getting, um, I don't know, grilled by these students doing their research about yeah. local knowledge and, and local history, which puts yeah. a lot of pressure on them and also means that 
maybe this this isn't knowledge that they want to like freely share like there's yeah. a lot of trauma and mm-hmm. cultural specificity involved in this mataranga yeah like some knowledge atapu right you can't just give it away to anyone because it means something um different one of the things that you i think a lot about as like someone doing research is well linda tohiwai smith's book decolonizing methodologies fantastic for a lot of indigenous communities and racialized communities the word research is like a really dirty word um that's i think almost verbatim from her book just that this the word research and the concept of research has an extremely like heavy eugenicist, horrible, traumatic, violent history that that still continues to this day. And the cult in question was a Swedish white dominant cult um, <laughs> instead of indigenous communities or something that would have made the film a lot more problematic. Which I guess brings us to this theme in Midsommar, which is on consent, like consent in the Western liberal researcher kind of way is an individualistic exercise where, you know, you fill up a form. It's a tick box exercise of like someone signing or getting a signature from the interview we, and then you've gotten consent and like that's a really yeah like a really individualistic sort of way of looking at uh what permission is and just tying it back to knowledge is collective and knowledge as sacred it doesn't really mesh well when certain knowledge systems are collectively owned or need to be collectively protected um like what sort of assumptions are we making when we're getting one person to consent or sign away permission like i may say something but other people who are implicated in that knowledge share or that information might not agree with me sort of sharing it which goes against a lot of the sort of western way of thinking of like oh, it's freedom of information and transparency and, yeah, just very liberal sort of ways of thinking that have allowed or justified their uh, encroachment into territories that are not theirs to own. Yeah, I'm trying to think in the film, Josh is sort of fist-pumping over the fact that the cult leader eventually gives him permission to write his thesis on this commune with aliases we get a glimpse of how knowledge is kept within this commune as well like through that book through the eugenics through the deliberate inbreeding but yeah what else do i want to say about this yeah so i guess tldr ethics consent um is not as straightforward as we've been taught cultures can never be fully known in fact, culture is a social construct. Oh, the other part that I wanted to talk about is just this, alongside this like sort of very hostile, cold, almost clinical way of fact-finding that Josh is engaging in along with his friends. There's the very affective, emotional journey that Danny is going on alongside that. And I find that very poignant as like a researcher to think about that like for everything that we see as research is like 
an emotional, like, long-term experience that we can't really control or put a finger on. Just before we we finish our our journey into the Swedish feast, (laughs) I want you to tell me, as a researcher who has a responsibility to Mm -hmm. act ethically when engaging with other cultures, you end up at the midsummer cult what yes. do you do how do you do how do you do it and how do you respect these fucked up sweats <laughs> i think i would do exactly what danny's doing done in the film i would be may queen i would do my best to assimilate into this cult and be may queen <laughs> and then put my boyfriend in a bear suit and, and then burn him uh-huh. <laughs> so you're the minute you get there, the minute you see those flowers, you're dropping out. You're dropping your doctorate. This is the new you. This is the new me. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. It's called autoethnography. Yeah. <laughs> it's what horrible uh, anthropologists at the, <laughs> in the 19th century called going native. Mm, yeah. Except it's, it's Sweden, so, so I don't yeah. care. No. <laughs> so anything else um, you'd like to say about... Uh, your dinner or your movie before we tuck into this lovely bowl of pulukunya? I think the themes that I've talked about today have been revolving around a few things. I guess like obviously solidarity, but also the heaviness of both Mitsoma and food for me sort of center around grief. And I think you can kind of draw connections between that and food and this and horror that probably makes sense if you talk to me a little bit more, but like also if you know, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that was my attempt at thinking about things through the lens of food and film. It was really hard, TBH, and support our future guests as they try to consider their mahi through food and film. Well, th- if they can see further, it's only because they stood on the, the shoulders sure. of giants, which is, you and me are the giants <laughs> in this situation. The groundwork yes. you laid this week, and I'm going to lay next week yes. when I talk about my um, dinner in a ah, movie. Can you give us a little starter? No, I can't, because it's not in my, in my culture to give people starters. Uh, <laughs> are you Swedish? <laughs> Thank you for listening.